Hello, and welcome to Sherlock, from Adler to Amberley. An attempt to analyse all 56 of the Sherlock Holmes short stories by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. In order. Starting with the first story, A Scandal in Bohemia, featuring the celebrated adventuress Irene Adler, and finishing with the final story of the casebook of Sherlock Holmes, The Retired Cullerman, where Holmes and Watson accept the case from Mr Josiah Amberley. Hence, from Adler to Amberley. My name is Carl Kopak, and I'll be presenting this irregular series along with a special guest as we attempt to assess the value of each tale of the canon. A recap of The Adventurer of the Priory School by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. It's one of the most famous introductions to a Sherlock Holmes story. Um, Holmes and Watson are in 221B, not really doing much, just lounging around as they normally do, um, when Dr Thorny, well, Dr Thorny Croft, sorry, Huxtable, um, pretty much falls through the door, collapses and needs reviving. He uh, He's spread out all over the carpet and... Um, well, while he's uh, sort of slowly recovering, Holmes deduces that uh, he's had a bit of a journey. He's come from somewhere far, far away, judging by the state of his chin, as in he's unshaved. Um, and um, uh, he's been... So there's, a, there's a ticket for uh, Mackleton. Mackleton, I think, is basically in somewhere in... in um, uh, not far from Chesterfield or, you know, not far from Derbyshire, that sort of area. So it's a fair old distance. Um, and uh, he's revived with the magical uh, glass of milk and a biscuit... Apparently that, uh, that can bring you around from uh, low blood sugar in very, very quick time. Once he's recovered, and he recovers incredibly quickly, um, he tells Holmes and Watson about, uh, well, basically about himself. He's uh, the founder and principal of a prep school called the Priory School, um, somewhere, in, let's say, somewhere in Derbyshire. Um, and uh, uh, he basically wants Holmes to come back to Mackleton with him. Uh, Mackleton is a fictitious town, I'm guessing, because one of his pupils has disappeared. It's not just any pupil either. It is the son of um, the Duke of Holderness, the famous Duke of Holderness, who's often uh, described as in this story, um, Lord Saltire. Lord Saltire is 10 years old. Um, he's not the only person who's disappeared, but uh, the German master has as well, Heidegger, uh, and he's disappeared on his bicycle. This is a bicycle story. It's the big one. Um, along with the solitary cyclist, it is pretty much uh, time for bicycle stories. We learn some more about um, uh, about the Duke of Holderness, Baron Beverley. He's described as in the uh, in the Radio Four adaptation. Um, he is estranged from his wife. His wife has gone off to um, I think it's the south of France, um, and the, the boy Lord Saltire is very very attached um, uh, uh, to, to her. Um, Holmes and Watson decide yes, we will go up to Mackleton. Um, there's a slight suggestion that money. He's very, very rich, this man. And Holmes, we'll talk about this with Mark, but uh, it, it seems that he's, he's, he's doubly keen to go and help out just because there's an awful lot of money on offer. Um, there's talk of £5,000, which is, which is a, a ludicrous sum <laughs> back in those days. But anyway, they, they go up and they meet the Duke. The Duke's a sort of quite a sort of peculiar sort of stiff character. 
um, and they also meet um, his secretary, a man called James Wilder, who's uh, um, quite a pompous sort of priggish sort of man, um, very much aware of uh, of the Duke of Oldenburg's stature and all this. And um, but you know they have a chat about it, and of course one thing that comes over is, is Duke the Duke of Oldenburg is, is very 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 keen to avoid a public scandal. Um, obviously, the fact that he split up with his wife is a bit embarrassing to him, uh, and now and now his boy's gone. So they go looking for clues, Holmes and Watson. Um, uh, the Duke says that he's fairly sure that is what his ex-wife hasn't really got anything to do with this disappearance, but she, but the boy might have gone to her, she, um, and there's certainly not been any ransom or anything like that. Um, the boy disappeared in the middle of the night. Um, uh, he was either taken away or coaxed away. Um, but there's no sort of you know sign of violence or anything like that. He's definitely slept in his bed, and Heidegger um, seems to have gone out without his without his socks, which shows that he's in a bit of a hurry. They have a quick recce of the area and find uh, that um, some of it, some of the land nearby, wouldn't sustain a bicycle chase or anything like that. So that's probably unlikely because um, it looks like the German teacher has uh, has gone off behind the kidnapper and and the boy. Um, you know, it's not it's too much too marshy, or you know, it's just it's just too overgrown. But they find one track, and I think that's probably the one they want. Um, and they also um, tie this up with lots of uh, witness statements about you know people who say they were looking out down the road for much of the night because they were expecting something or other, and, and you know they didn't see anything. So Holmes just thinks he's on the right path of where they're going to be. Um, it's reported a bit later that um, the, the his school cap is found. Um, in the possession of some gypsies. <laughs> the gypsies, again, we're back to the speckled band. And as we know one thing about Conan Doyle, if gypsies are mentioned, they're innocent. Um, it's definitely a MacGuffin. So they go searching for him, Holmes and Watson. It's one of my favourite scenes, I think, um, where they go looking um, for a bicycle track. Um, and they find one. It, it's not Heidegger's, though, because uh, it doesn't match his tyres. There's a long talk about them. We're probably going to talk about the Dunlop um, tyre. Um Holmes notices that one of the tyres got a patch on it, um, and that's not Heidegger's. Heidegger's didn't have a patch on it, so there's something definitely afoot. Um, all the other um, uh, tracks are, are, are pretty much hidden by cow tracks, um, of which there are the many, many cow tracks around. But eventually they find the, the German master's tracks, uh, and in the end they find him, and his head's been beaten in. He is incredibly dead. Um, signs of violence, and uh, uh, luckily they... <laughs> There seems to be what they call a, a peasant nearby who can um, go and summon help while they carry on. They carry on to a place called the Fighting Cock, uh, and they meet the uh, the owner, a man called Reuben Hayes, um, uh, and they basically try and ingratiate themselves in him. But he's, he's having none of it at all. He says, and Holmes says, you know, um, uh, could, could you get us a, a horse to go up to the Holderness Hall? And Reuben Hayes is clearly a scoundrel. Um, very, very Silver Blaze, actually, and the man in silver. Is it Silas Brown in, in Silver Blaze? Uh, very sort of suspicious. Um, there's rumours that the boy's been seen in Liverpool, so he said, oh, we want to go up there and, and tell you know, tell the Duke that, you know, we found this. But Hayes is reluctant to sort of help them at all. Um, there, uh, well, well, Holmes basically has to bribe him and say, like, you know, we'll give you some money if you can help me, if I can borrow a bicycle. So I haven't got a bicycle. Um, and he said, well, how about some horses then? He said, well, you know, okay. Then but Holmes, in, in the end, actually has to fake having an ankle injury um, just so he can get some food and sort of still have a little nose round and, uh, and, and you know, basically see what they can find at the Fighting Cock Inn because, as you probably gathered, Holmes is, probably thinks that this man, Hayes, has got something to do with this. It's then that Holmes realises, um, he's thinking about the cow tracks and he realises that 
although the place was absolutely overrun with cow tracks, one thing that wasn't there was cows. And also, the patterns of the prints um, suggested that the cows, I love this, trotted, cantered, and galloped. Um, they weren't cows, they were clearly... You know, they weren't cows. Uh, <laughs> so they sneak into his stable and have a look at the hooves, and uh, as he expects... Um, they've been recently shooed on with you know old shoes, new nails, which means um, someone's trying to hide something. At that point, Hayes, um, Reuben Hayes discovers them and basically kicks them out. As they're on the way back, um, they notice a cyclist coming towards them. Um, it's their own solitary cyclist. Um, and it's James Wilder who heads straight to the... Um, He's going straight to see Reuben Hayes. Now, that this is incredibly suspicious because, of course, James Wilder, the, the Duke's secretary, is a very sort of, as I say, pompous man. And now he's hanging around with this Reuben Hayes man who's clearly a villain. Um, uh, the, pull, the, the, the trap um, leaves the stable yard and goes on the, towards the direction of Chesterfield. Um, they later see this man with somebody else in the darkness. Um, Holmes is pretty much sure now that he's, uh, he's on the right track, um, so to speak. Um, he sees that Wilder's bicycle tyres and notes that they're the same make as the first ones encountered on the moor, so Wilder is definitely involved in this whole thing. Wilder greets them at the door and says, oh, you can't see the Duke, he's uh, he's not well. And he says, I'll, I'll see him where he is. He says, well, he's in bed. So, well, I'll see him in bed then. Um, and um, he's, uh, Holmes marches in and says, OK, I'd, I'd like a cheque for £6,000, please, because I've solved it. Um, your boy is at the, uh, the Fighting Cock Inn and... Um, uh, oh, sorry, he sends Wilder out the room while he does that. He says, yeah, your boy's there, and I'll have, I'll have the £6,000, please. And he said, who are you accusing? He says, well, I accuse you. Um, and he's right, the Duke is behind it, but it's actually the, the mastermind of it is James Wilder himself, um, because there's a big secret. James Wilder is not the secretary. Well, he is the secretary, but he's also the illegitimate son of the Duke, and there's clearly a bit of blackmail going on. Um, he had the plan to kidnap Lord Saltire, um, to, to force the Duke of Holderness to change his will. Um, obviously, the Duke of Holderness can't prosecute him or call the police or do anything like that because then he's, he's a man who's very, very scared of scandal and um, he wouldn't be too happy with that. To help with the kidnapping, um, Wilder employed Hayes, um, who then disappeared um, not long after this. Um, but Holmes has got him. Holmes has already captured him. He's, he told the police exactly where he'll be. Um, Hayes killed the German master Heidegger, um, and Wilder, to any tiny credit, um, confessed it all to, to the Duke once he'd heard of this and wanted nothing to do with a murder on his hands. Not massively brave of him, but um, he's not a nice man. Um, then they have, things are a bit more a bit calmer now, and um, the Duke tells um, Holmes that uh, uh, the, the, um, it's, a, it's an old smuggling trick when he asked about the cow tracks, which he's particularly interested in. He says, yeah, what we do is we put... Uh, so basically they shod the horseshoes, but with... Um, uh, with special shoes that look like make make it look like cows. Um, Wilder is basically packed off to Australia, <laughs> as it tends to happen if they can't prosecute him. And um, Holmes pick up picks up his check, and that's the adventure of the Priory School. Our guest to discuss the adventure of the Priory School is Mark Jones. Mark is a Sherlockian and Doylean who has loved the works of Conan Doyle since reading the Sherlock Holmes stories One Wet Caravan Holiday when he was just twelve. He is a member of many Sherlockian societies and is an invested Baker Street Irregular, a master bootmaker of the Bootmakers of Toronto and an adventuress of Sherlock Holmes. Mark and his good friend Paul M. Chapman together host Doings of Doyle, the Arthur Conan Doyle podcast. Each month they delve into a different aspect of Conan Doyle's life and work from the well-known to the obscure. 
Mark works in higher education and lives in York, in the north of England. Mark, thanks so much for joining us to discuss the adventure of the Priory School. Um, I've been looking forward to this one uh, a good deal because I find it a really, really strange story. Um, <laughs> but before we get into any of that business, um, I want to hear about the doings of Doyle, please. Oh, right. Yes. When did, when did this start? <laughs> yeah, it's, it started, my goodness, um, 2019. And oh, okay. uh, so the podcast is uh, is focused on Conan Doyle's wider work. So we, we do cover a bit of Sherlock Holmes, but um, we also cover the uh, um, uh, the wider sort of non-Sherlockian star- stories as well, as well as sort of interviewing people about who, who are doing interesting work on his uh, on his on his life um and uh the the we in that is uh, myself and paul chapman and paul and i um actually met at the york book fair about 10 years ago and uh we struck up a conversation uh, by a bookseller who um who is notorious for bringing together sherlockians and uh, and sort of said you know do you two know each other no we didn't uh, and our conversation quite quickly ran to 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 conan Doyle's wider work so we started doing the podcast about 2019. We had a very brief hiatus at the beginning of 2020 when everything went into lockdown. We had to try and work out how we were going to record remotely. And um, and then we've been doing one pretty religiously, one a month uh, since since uh, since we got back on the air towards the end of 2020. So we've just done our, I think, 36th episode. Um, and each time we just take a different a different aspect of Conan Doyle's life and work and and um, deep dive in it in sort of nerdy detail. That that really puts us to shame. So you've been going um, less time <laughs> than us, and you've already beaten us in terms of your episode <laughs> delivery. Uh, that, that, that's not true. Well, what is interesting, though, for me is that um, your story with Paul there very much echoes uh, John and I's first All meeting, right. um, which took place in a pub at a uh, at the East End conference. Um, which is basically Jack the Ripper stuff, yeah, and um, yeah. and then John just had called me over to his table and we sat down like old chums and discussed maybe we should do a podcast one day. L- literally immediately, <laughs> I don't think I even said hello, John. I um, mean, we 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 done some podcasts before. Yes, yeah, we had. Yeah, we never met before. Walk in the pub and go, you let's do a podcast <laughs> together. So. <laughs> you sound like the sort of you look like the sort of person who. Wants to know about mongooses. I like the cut of your jib. Yeah, that's right. Absolutely. <laughs> that's what you have to do. So, um, yeah, so I did. Um, I, but I've, I've enjoyed I've enjoyed listening to your podcast. I've been able to dip into quite a bit. Of, and I'd listened to a fair bit of Rippercast as well before then, because I, I had an interest in that area, too, um, because my background was a, sort of as a, a history lecturer originally. Um, and I used to teach um, a fair bit of that era. 18th, 19th century British and world history okay. as well. So um, nowhere near as knowledgeable as you guys on that subject, but I very much had a, have an interest in that sort of thing as well. I'll, I'll say John outstrips me significantly. I'm <laughs> pretty much everybody else in there. I, I'm very much the new boy um, <laughs> in, in all this. Um, one thing I will say about Conan Doyle is um, I. This is this is a shocking admission to somebody who hosts <laughs> and organises a podcast. Um, I, I don't really know much about him. I've never really, you know, jumped into the other works. Mm. All, I, all I know really is that he played in goal for Portsmouth. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and I've been to Hindhead, um, not specifically to see that, but I thought, oh, well, that's where that is. Okay. Yeah, uh, that's very yeah. fast. And, um, uh, and the fairies. 
Yes, of course. The Cottingley like Fairies. I've never actually said that word out loud. I just did. That's it. Um, Everybody knows the Cottingley Fairies, I'm afraid. <laughs> how did he not see that it's very clearly, they're very clearly cut out of a book? <laughs> well, I think that gets us into the realms of what do you want to see, doesn't it, really? And, yeah. you know, I think Conan Doyle, you know, it's one of the great big mysteries of, of um, Conan Doyle is really what happens in his, his later life and his spiritualist question. People have tended to sort of, the conventional wisdom is that he, he moved into spiritualism quite late in his life. But actually, he had an interest in this stuff right from the 1880s, from the time he was playing for Portsmouth in goal. And um, uh, he, he, he always had an interest in that kind of side of things. And there's a sense in which he was searching from a young age for something that would explain the things that were not explainable. Um, and um, so I tend to see the, the sort of whole spiritualism and particularly the Cottingley Fairies incident as being part of quite a long train of development for Conan Doyle. And when he got to the to the fairies bit, I mean, I think there, there are lots of things going on in his head. One of it, one of them is that he's really opposed at that point to um, scientific orthodoxy and people imposing their own will on uh, a gatekeeping, as it were, knowledge yeah. and saying, you know, there's only so, you know, only the things that fit these, this, these equations are, uh, are admissible. And I think that's one of the reasons why he, he, he reacts so um, strongly, because it becomes a big fight between the spiritualists and the rationalists. And, uh, and it sort of escalates over that. But there's also, intriguingly, connections back to his father. His father was a, uh, an artist. He's from an artistic family more than a medical family. He's from an artistic family. And his father was an artist and was a uh, um, uh, Charles Altamont Doyle. Very sadly, um, suffered from alcoholism and, and died in an asylum. And um, there's sort of echoes of that throughout Conan Doyle's work, including in, in the Sherlock Holmes stories. Um, but his father often painted and drew fairies. Uh, and there's some quite amazing artwork that still survives by Charles Altamont Doyle. Obviously, his middle name is where we get Altamont in, yep. in uh, his last bow. Um, but um, yeah, so so I think there's lots of things mixed up in, in that. But it's, uh, you know, I think the spiritualism sort of came on him uh, over a longer period of time than perhaps a lot of people have sort of previously said. And it's quite hard, I think, now to write off his later years, as was done previously, as being, you know, that, the, the last 10 years of his life where he went a bit bonkers. Um, <laughs> because we've started to appreciate a bit more, you know, what else was going on around then, what, what he was interested in, as well as the sort of so social and cultural aspects of you know, life post First World War when spiritualism was really quite a massive thing as people were trying. Yeah, and I think that's the thing that colours it now, to be honest. Mm. It, it, it's very much a case of, you know, yes, you can laugh at it from across the centuries now, oh, century, um, <laughs> but, um, but you know, then it really was in vogue. You know, there was a, there was a whole sort of uh, um, uh, a huge movement um, about, about spiritualism at the time. And um, I, I've always found it interesting that um, and, and I don't mean as if this is criticism at all. I generally find it fascinating that he is a doctor. Mm. Um, so, you know, based in the scientific method, he invents the most scientific method related character in the history mm -hmm. of literature. And yet, well, well, he and Sherlock wouldn't have got on. 
yeah. <laughs> um, based on that. And, you know, I'll tell you, man, this is the man who wrote The Sussex Vampire. Yeah, that's right. We're home so straight away. No, absolutely not. No, yeah. there is not. There is nothing esoteric going on here at all. Yeah. And famously, he creates a, a great scientific hero, brilliant Professor Challenger, who he then actually converts yep. to, to spiritualism in the third Challenger story. Uh, he doesn't go that far with with Holmes. Uh, although actually we covered when we covered the creeping man um, in the podcast, we did have a bit of a discussion about the last paragraph of the, the creeping man, which is quite suggestive in that it could it could sort of open the door for a slightly different interpretation of, of what Holmes view is. Um, and um, but, you know, that's uh, that's 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 a bit of speculation. But it's interesting because Conan Doyle, you know, creeping man was one of those stories that one of many stories that Conan Doyle thought was going to be his last Sherlock Holmes story. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so there's, there, you know, he, but you're right, there's this, there's there's the great, um, it's one of the great sort of mysteries of Conan Doyle, like you get all these tensions in his work uh, between him him doing this sort of scientific, rationalist, materialist, and then the reaction against it. And you've also got, you know, the very romantic, um, chivalric novels, and then you yeah. get the, the, you know, the responses to that as well. So he's he's quite a contradictory figure. And that's why I think people continue to study and learn about him now. I, th- I think there's also, um, uh, it's interesting that we're, where we are in the canon doing this, because we're, we're doing all 56 in order. Mm. Um, so we've just gone through, so we've just gone through the, the hiatus yeah. um, and, and come out into this section here, um, where there's a slight blurring of the lines because Holmes is now... Uh, it's actually say he's a Buddhist, but he's interested in it. Yeah, and he, and he's accepting of it, and you know, and 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 it's brought up every now and then. And so I, I think maybe this that maybe this would maybe what's this 1904 or something, John? 1904. This kind um, of yeah. so maybe this the, this is where he's starting to sort of you know, take the edges off him a bit and sort of move Sherlock on from the you know the hard calculating machine to well, what what about mm. this? And he's mm, a bit more accepting about it. Yeah, it's one of the things I like about the return. I mean, the return gets a bit of a hammering, um, but I I like the fact that he is fallible, and he's always been fallible. I mean, you know, yeah. st- you know, Scanlan Bohemia, he doesn't succeed. So, um, but I I do like the fact that you get you get a bit more of a glimpse of that, and and certainly you continue to do so in the later in the later home stories. Um, it's just one of the things that me- makes him a really you know Holmes and Watson a great pairing and and really fascinating characters. Well, this is John's point, of the, um, um, which I'm going to steal, um, <laughs> in case he's not listening, uh, which is the stories are about friendship. Mm. Primarily, they're about, yes, they're, yes, they're adventures. Yes, they're crime stories. Sometimes there's not even a crime involved. It does not always win, but the, but the friendship always exists. And I think that's um, such a huge part of these stories. Yeah, but I is. like the fact that he also builds in, because he has to, because he's writing across an entire lifetime, obviously, he builds in such an arc, but you know, to, to to take that edge off Sherlock and you know, and and what Watson gets married, yep. six or seven times, I think, <laughs> uh, <laughs> certainly moves house every twenty minutes. Well. <laughs> That's right. We've we've done that. Um, we always ask two questions at the mm. start of this the start of this show, and the um, nice easy one for you. Where did all this start for you? Why Sherlock? All right. Well, I. I... My first memory of Sherlock Holmes is watching the Basil Rathbone movies when they were repeated on, I think it was BBC Two. Um, and uh, I used to go and stay with my 
grandparents and my grandmother was a massive fan of old black and white movies had sort of encyclopedic but also useless knowledge of movies where she would say oh yes it's that movie where which features that bloke who was also in this thing that where he was married to her you know it was that kind of level of <laughs> level of non-knowledge but also encyclopedic at the same time and she was mad keen on basil rathbone absolutely loved him and said oh you've got to watch these and so we watched um the the sherlock holmes movies probably when i was about 10 or 11 um and then we went on a very long caravanning hor- holiday um and uh, and it rained for about three weeks <laughs> and uh, the the one book i'd uh, taken with me was the complete sherlock holmes um dad had said you know you're allowed some money you can go into a bookshop and you can buy whichever book you like and i cheekily went in and bought the complete Sherlock Holmes um, and uh, and basically read all the short stories at least over that. I think I've probably read all of it over that summer. Um, so like I... Like it's um, Desert Island Discs, almost. <laughs> yeah, it's like, yeah, so it was, a, it was, I think, a particularly wet bit of Scotland. And um, uh, and yeah, so there was nothing else to do. Um, but it was it was delightful anyway, because I managed to get through all of the all of the stories. And and f- then that was probably around the time that um, it was or shortly before uh, the Granada series came on as well. And then the Granada series sort of cemented it. But I was never really active in Sherlockian fandom until um, I met Paul um, and his partner, Teresa and David Stewart Davies and people like that in about 2014-15. So I was what the what we term a solitary cyclist, as it were, before for many, many years until sort of finding fandom um, organised fandom uh, around then, about ten years ago. Well, we're the same actually. Well, I don't, I don't know about John, but um, I, I certainly have never met anyone who likes Sherlock Holmes apart from Paul Edwards, who is uh, <laughs> uh, who's in a few shows. So this is one of my oldest friends, um, yeah. and so so we we really have jumped into this whole community. Yes, and, and, um, you know, uh, <laughs> getting a pretty good calibre of guests over, which I which I wouldn't have wasn't expecting at all. I genuinely thought this just could be me and John at some point, just. You know, <laughs> Well, going through the bland soldier, you know, and things like that. <laughs> I like, you know I like what? the term solitary cyclist, though. I think that's, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a good one compared to, uh, you know, some things I, I could think of myself for my little uh, hobbies. But, uh, yeah, <laughs> I, I'm the same. Um, until really, you know, until starting the podcast with Carl, um, mm. no involvement in fandom of uh, or Sherlockian community at all. Yeah. It's a great community as well. I mean, it's really giving community. The great, the lovely thing is, you know, people have always got time for everybody else. And also it's very welcoming of new people. And um, that's what I found, certainly. And We've really um, found it carries that. on now, you know. Um, it's great. It's really good. So I'm not surprised you've got, you know, great, you've been able to get, you know, good guests on. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, long may, long, long may it continue. It's, it's been fantastic so, so much so that um on one of the the early shows we did john and i actually joined the sherlock Holmes society of london while recording <laughs> we literally both sort of you know, <laughs> That's very good. I, i'm i'm in norfolk john's in south wales and, oh, right uh, okay yeah i was i was in london then but uh, we yeah yeah we both <laughs> you know, just, yeah. did you join yeah i joined yeah i can't remember who it was now it's, it's luke he said yeah 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 we, we both joined yeah, we, we're both involved now um, oh, that's good. We're looking at the primary school. Um, I have, uh, um, I'm, I've, I've got the slightest link to it. 
in that the Jeremy Brett series, um, part of it was recorded in my sister's school. Oh, really? Um, which you can apparently so. I've got a vague memory of this, but I do also wonder if if that story is being conflated by the fact that the red head was it the red headed yeah the red headed league it was filmed in my school, which is across the road. Oh, okay. Um, which, is, which is now the Paul McCartney Fame School. So she went to the the, you know, the girls' version of my school, oh, uh, the Liverpool Institute High School for Boys. So the the scene in the Red Headed League where they go to the concert, that's oh, where yes. the fifty years sat, and I was fifty <laughs> at the time when that came and that was recorded. Oh, fantastic! So that's so that's, that's quite nice. Um, and I've got a vague recollection that oh, so, so oh yeah, they recorded to the primary school in my sister's school because it's quite an old building and um, oh, wonderful. Both both schools can double for a bank quite easily. They're sort of you know place what have you. Um, I've got to say that makes me sound like I'm I'm very very posh and very well educated. Not at all. That's why they closed it the year I left. Um, but um, did you enjoy the primary school? Is it a favourite? Well, I. I... It's not one of my favorite. I have to say, I'm slightly ambivalent about the primary school. Um, it's it's not high on my list, um, but that comes with the inevitable caveat that all Sherlock Holmes stories are good. You know, there's always yeah. stuff to enjoy in them. But I think for me, there are sort of three things that I find a bit troubling in this. One of them is James Wilder and what he's up to, because I just don't think it makes much sense. Um, I've got I've got theories here, Mark. Well, we'll we'll get we'll circle back on this one because I think it's a I think it's a bit of an odd one. The the other is I think Holmes's solution at the end and how he helps out the Duke is really morally dubious. Um, he's really skating on thin ice. But the but the third one and the thing that has really sort of coloured my opinion of this for a long time is that I just think this is Silver Blaze done a, done again. Yeah. And. Um, you know, I, I was looking around trying to find, I'm sure I'm not the first person to say it. Somebody else would have said it, I'm sure, but I can't remember who. Um, but, um, you know, the, the, the challenge with this story is that it, it, it's structurally um, the same thing as Silver Blaze. So in Silver Blaze, you've got a horse goes missing. Here it's a boy. In Silver Blaze, the horse is found in the possession of a ruffian who's, you know, a rival, um, rival trainer. In this, the boy is with this ruffian of a a publican and and both ruffians incidentally get you know sort of singled out as being ruffians in in the story both cases you've got clients who are complete gits frankly and holmes doesn't like them um both clients get accused uh so you you've obviously got the famous scene at the end of this uh with the duke but also uh you have the whole you know the murderers under your hand in silver blaze and the implication around colonel russell what's happening there um, and then there's some kind of minor things in um, the two stories as well that that sort of track. So, you know, you've got the fact that, you know, Holmes gets the great revelation as to what, you know, the great corroborating evidence comes right in that penultimate scene. You know, so in Silver Blaze, it's this business about the flock of sheep here. It's the um, I don't know what you call them, cow shoes, <laughs> Those cow shoes. Um, You've got um, you've got the fact that there's this moor setting and, you know, yet again, you've got gypsies wandering across the moor who are inherently suspicious in Conan Doyle's mind. And then you've got the one that really interests me, though, is the fact that you've got this body on the moor. So you've got uh, in uh, Silver Blaze, you have John Straker, yep. who we're meant to believe is uh, a good guy and turns out to be the villain. Yep. And in this, you've got Heidegger, who's meant to be the villain, but turns out to be the good guy. So it feels like this is kind of going a bit like going through the numbers on on Silver Blaze again, 
And um, and that's why I think it's, I've always been a bit ambivalent towards this one. I mean, Conan Doyle himself said this was one of his top 12. He put this in 10th yeah, place. Yeah, he did, yeah. And he said it was, you know, it was uh, largely because of the, the accusation with the Duke, which is a great moment. Um, but he didn't put Silver Blaze in there, you know, Silver Blaze. Silver Blaze didn't even place, if you forbid the pun. So, you know, he, 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 he I'm really surprised by that because for me, Silver Blaze is a much, much stronger story than, than Priory School. I think uh, when you know that list, I can't remember year wasn't 1912, was it? Um, it it's not. It, it, that's right. Yeah. When when he goes back to it and 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 adds some more, it's even stranger. And I can see yeah. why he's doing that because he's got book styles that he's just written. Exactly. Um, there was one a show we did recently. John is a solitary cyclist isn't even in there or something. Um, absolute Stonewall classic. Uh, yeah, solitary yeah. cyclist isn't there um yeah it's, it's not on the list it's not on either list really weird isn't it odd list that's that that's really strange that's really strange well one thing i will say and, and again this, this does compare to silver blaze is it's got a hell of an introduction oh yeah i'm always a big fan of um uh silver blazers watson i've made a blunder yes which I think is what I think is one of my favourite intros. That that and um, and a story I don't like very much. The Bell Coroner, you know, Holmes here yeah. is a man in the street, you know. Um, but I, I think um, Huxtable collapsing onto the floor <laughs> is just just tremendous. One one thing that does bother me though is I'm not sure of the restorative powers of milk in a biscuit. <laughs> he goes from absolute, you know, death door. I don't know if Brandy's called for in this one, but um, you know he, he he's he's taken back to life again and and within minutes within minutes he's relaying the story about the prospectus of his school <laughs> I, I think it's a bit like um you know i'm surprised actually because you would have thought watson is sort of like you know no mate it's only brandy and meat meat off the sideboard here you know that's that, that's all you're <laughs> gonna get but um i do you know when when i read that i thought oh milk and biscuits isn't this what you get at primary school yeah so maybe he's just become addicted to it after all these years. <laughs> I, I just wonder if he gets those NAF sports biscuits. Yeah, I, I was going to say, those biscuits aren't good, are they? No. He, he's, he's not going for the fancy biscuit with, with wrapping on them. <laughs> no, no. No, these are, these are our best um, rich tea or Lincoln biscuits. <laughs> that's anyone, right. Anyone can remember Lincoln biscuits. Yeah, that's they, it. They, they were the ones you left the, at, at the end. <laughs> um, and, and, of course, in, in Silver Blaze, it, it's... Um, um, he, he dashes off to the other side of the country. But one, what, what this story always means for me um, is obviously is the cycling through, which to be honest, I'm less interested in, you know, whether, whether you can read trucks going backwards or forwards. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And that sort of thing. Because I know that's, that's always brought up. This story for me, Mark, is about money. Yeah. Because normally, it's, so, so Solitary Cyclist, he, he's dealing with, um, I've already forgotten their name, I imagine it's Violet. Um, <laughs> yeah. He... Um, so I, I can't, I can't, I can't go. I've got the Abbey of Any Murder. I can't go. I can't go. I'm just too busy. I'm just too busy. I can't go. And then this one is just, you know. By the way, the Duke, he's very rich, you know. He can't, he can't get, he can't get to Euston or King's Cross, wherever it is, fast enough. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, it's what you know. So uh, you know, only a very important issue could call me away from London at present. Oh, so oh, what right. about what about six thousand pounds? Oh yeah, I'll just get my code. It is. He's completely in it for the cash in this one. Um, which is, which is, I, I think I, I looked at something like six hundred thousand pounds. So yeah, so so six thousand pounds 
is you times it by about 60, don't you? So it's like 360,000 pounds today. Yeah. And then, but actually he gets offered 12, doesn't he? Yeah. And, um, you know, I was I was reading somebody, somebody was writing about this sort of saying it's it's obviously a bribe. It is a bribe, but there's an interesting thing about it, which is that, you know, the, the Duke sort of says, um, if you re- read that section again, the Duke is actually saying, uh, but you and your friend are men of discretion, Mr. Holmes. I hardly understand your grace. I must put it plainly, Mr. Holmes, if only you too know of the incident, there's no reason why it should go any further. I think £12,000 is the sum that I owe you, is it not? So he's trying to bribe both Holmes and yeah. Watson. <laughs> the sad thing about that is Holmes probably takes the £6,000. So dear old Watson's probably missed out again in this one, in that um, Holmes just sort of takes the cash. But it is it is a weird one, isn't it? It doesn't feel right, I think. Um, and particularly at the end, the fact that Holmes basically says, you know, the, it's not as simple as just bribing us to keep quiet. And um, there's the business of this dead teacher that we have to have to sort out. Yeah, like, well. a, like it's a minor complication. Oh, <laughs> That's right. It's bloody murder, isn't it? Oh, yeah. I've, uh, I've, I've just done the calculations uh, here. Um, the va- a bit, assuming the story takes place in 1901, yeah. uh, 12,000 pounds in 1901 is worth in 2023, 1,887,067 pounds and 20 pence. Gosh. If well, it wasn't for that bloody teacher. Well, there you go. There you go. Uh, and you know, but and and you know, you put that into context as well. You know, if you were to rent rooms in Baker Street around then, it's about two hundred pounds a year. Yeah. So you know, spending power wise as well. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's incredible, isn't it? That that amount of, amount of money. And then you get the the business of what you know Holmes then does. Holmes then basically says, you know, it's not as simple as uh, as as just bribing us because there's this dead school teacher to deal with. Um, and then. He promptly deals with it um, in the, in the <laughs> to the point of yeah. basically saying, well, you know what? Sod Reuben Hayes. He's a bad one. He's going to go to the gallows anyway. As long as the police don't find out about Wilder, you're fine. Yeah. And and Holmes, you know, so I think um, it's the it's the thing about this story that um, that concerns me, you know, uh, concerns me most is that I just think the moral compass is really off in the in in that last sequence it just doesn't doesn't ring true to me at all um which begs this question really for me are they rich it's what, I suppose it depends what you mean by rich because mm. you know he's, he's got no time for nobility whatsoever he doesn't think you know um money basically gives you any social status where of course it does because he's incredibly mm-hmm. rude to most other people in there's you know lord saint simon Cantlemere, colonel ross even yeah 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 he's rude to everyone Although he bows to St. Simon, which is really strange. Yeah, he does. Yeah. Um, rude to a king, like 10 pages into the first ever story. <laughs> yes. Um, and I don't know if Baker Street was a, a well, I, I know from our, our Jack the Ripper stuff that um, it, you needed money to live there, certainly. Mm. But um, presumably he's doing OK for cash. He has just done a world trip for, you know, two years. <laughs> he has. Yeah. Um, so maybe the coffers are low. He's at the well, end he does of his say... career now, so he's you know he's he's not long off retiring, and he's had some quite high-profile cases for high-profile people. I think you can assume he's he's got some money in the bank account. Yeah, well, he he says in 
final problem, I think he says, you know, I've just done I've just done a gig for a royal family and for the French government and I'm settled, thanks. I can just go back to my chemical experiments and live yeah. my relatively solitary life. Um, but I've just got this, you know, dodgy professor to deal with. So But, but poor old Watson though. <laughs> um, blows half his money on gambling every week. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So it might be that what's actually happening here is that Holmes is just propping up Watson. <laughs> it's uh, he, uh, he's not, you know, the, the whole I am a poor man is definitely ironic. It's it, it, he's yeah. poor in comparison to the Duke of um, Austin. Yes, absolutely. Um, but it, but um, he doesn't need the cash. Um, I mean, it's a question of, of the. The, this reminded me of um, one of the sort of puzzles in um, Problem of Thought Bridge, where he says, you know, my my charges are on a fixed scale. I vary them. You know, yeah. I, I, I seldom, was it? I don't vary them. When I, when I admit them all together. Yeah, that's it. So we remit them. So and I, and I always wondered, you know, well, what is this? What is this imaginary scale? Because um, and I actually think I think there might be something of this in in one of the really early stories, bizarrely, in case of identity. He talks about the difference between cases that are important and cases that are interesting. And um, and, you know, in that he sort of says, you know, well, if they're important, it's a duty that I solve them. And if they're interesting, it's a it's a great personal um you know, it's a great personal pleasure. So I suspect he does have a scale and the scale basically goes, if it's interesting, I'm not going to charge for it. Yeah, if it's I important, I'm going to screw you for every penny you've yeah. got. <laughs> and that's probably how he, you know, after he's done all those diplomatic stories, he's probably, you know, putting his putting his feet up, frankly. Um, so, 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 to such a degree that he's pretty much strong arming the Duke in his own bedroom. <laughs> yes. And, you know, there's a checkbook. Come on. Come on. <laughs> Write the check. Well, that's Write right. Write the isn't check it? now. It is a great moment, though, isn't that whole, you know, I accuse you. Now, let's have that check. Yes, yeah. it is. A, it is a wonderful, wonderful. Yeah, I know, I know everything. I don't have to go into it. I know everything. <laughs> so just get right in. <laughs> and, and, you know, it's one of the that's, you know, I might have been harsh about the story uh, in, in setting you up. But it's the great thing about all the Sherlock Holmes stories is that you, you always have great moments um, to um, in every single one. I mean, you picked up straight away. Thorncroft Huxtable's arrival, which is one of the most dramatic in yeah. the in the whole series, and and the description is brilliant. You know, we had sprung to our feet, and for a few moments we stared in silent amazement at this ponderous piece of wreckage, <laughs> uh, which told of some sudden and fatal storm far out on the ocean of life. I, I mean, it's not, a I, great yeah, moment, I, I, isn't it? I wrote, I wrote that down to the wreckage, the wreckage of Doctor Thorny Huxtable. <laughs> who goes from unconsciousness to talking about base, basically day fees for his school? Yeah, um, that's uh, it. It, it, it is. It is. Uh, it's. I think this is a memorable story just because of the of, of obviously because of the cows and the horses. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, I I love the fact I love the fact that the that the teacher's German. Yes. Again, <laughs> got to make him more evil, Watson. If this was a film, <laughs> oh, film, you know, is that sort of thing? Yes, he's a, definitely he's a... have a moustache. <laughs> oh dear, he does. And and you know what? The the other thing I quite like about this story is that you've got it's the you've got this sort of weird um, uh, you've got this weird attitude that Holmes has towards the nobility and um, and and titles more broadly. As yeah. you've pointed out, you know, um, 
that could be played more with. And in fact, they do play more with it when they do the Granada adaptation. But I, I also thought it was quite, it's interesting in this story. That's why that the ending sort of doesn't quite play off, pay off for me because, you know, I think he should just be really rude to the Duke. Frankly, the ending suffers from the fact that Wilder isn't there. You know, he's not in the scene at the end. Yeah. Um, and um, Holmes should basically just see Wilder break down and then say to the Duke, you know, um, this guy's complicit in the murder and no amount of money that you can throw at me is going to put you beyond the reach of the law. Well, and then, you know, that's, that's where yeah. I think, you know, that's a more satisfying ending. And, and because it plays off also this thing about Holmes and, and titles. I mean, you get it not just in Duke of Holderness. I think it's great, isn't it, that, you know, he says, oh, gosh, the Duke of Holderness. And then he has to go to his book of reference to remind himself who he is. Um, yeah. And then you've also got that wonderful line about Thornycroft Huxtable's business card being um was it something too too oh. flimsy for the weight of his post-nominal sort of thing <laughs> oh, the or <laughs> it's great so you've got this sort of healthy distrust of this stuff and then it's sort of just sold out a bit in the in in those last few paragraphs it's a it's a bit of a shame well i think this is what makes the story so interesting particularly if you read them when you're young because you know we all like to sort of you know show our backside to, you know, to, to, the, to mm. the gentry when we're about you know, nine or ten years old. We always want to be a bit rebellious, and that's why people get on Sherlock's side, I think, as much as the, yes. the cleverest stuff is. He, he doesn't care. Like, it's it, it, yes. it's it's ignoring the teacher in the room, isn't it? Yeah, it is. You know, it, it's being as rebellious as you can. I do think that's part of it, too. I, I certainly like that. Mm. Um, but uh, um, the, the, the wilder thing is interesting to me in as much as, the last time we see him, he's just basically said, um, I, I want to go and see him. You can't, he's in bed. Well, I go and see him there. Okay. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> no, you know, dashing across the moors in the middle of the night or yeah, anything. Or, right. You know, there could there could be a hound of the basketballs type, you know, chasing staples and through the quagmire and things like that. But he just basically says, um, yeah, okay. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's weird because when they did it in Granada, they did in the end have a kind of showdown with Wilder, which yeah. was in, in a cave. Um, and um, uh, it, it kind of doesn't work. Uh, just an aside on that, Alan Howard has the world's biggest coat in that scene. I was watching it again the other day. It's astonishing. You know, have you ever seen those sort of inflatable sumo outfits? Yeah. yeah. It looks like he's wearing one of those. Yeah. Because the guy is pencil thin, and he's got this massive coat. And they go, they go wandering down into this uh, into this cavern, and there's this sort of rather artificial showdown with with Wilder. But in a way, as much as it's daft, it kind of has a more of a payoff. Yeah, you um, need the adventure, don't you? This, this is yeah. my, my Eddie's point all the time. They are adventures, you know. Thorbridge is it. a problem, not an adventure, but they are mostly adventures. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and you know, and in, the, the, in this, Wilder just gets the tried old, um, you know. Bob Ferguson's son treatment of, you know, we'll send you away to the colonies for a couple of years and that'll sort you out. Which is very three students from what I can remember. Yeah, that's that happens there as well, South Africa, isn't it? Go, yeah. go, join, go join the Rhodesia police, I think it is, isn't it? We, we, yeah, back. we've decided to send the troublesome elements of your personality to a different country, so it's all fine. Yeah, to be a policeman as well, yeah, <laughs> which absolutely. is great. <laughs> it's like... Absolutely, yeah. The, the bastion of law and order. Um, what <laughs> we've done, I cheated to get here. Um, <laughs> It's probably not a great start, um, <laughs> but I've done that. Um, one thing I like about the way Conan Doyle does frame this, though, is I think it's interesting that all the way through it, um, 
he really pushes the the Duke doesn't like scandal. I think that's because of his marriage yeah. and it sort of dropped it. I think that's very well done. Yes. So but he's not hiding the fact that he's got a, a, a you know a secret child. Yes. It's just that he doesn't like people talking about him. Yeah. And I thought that was very clever when I reread it. Obviously, I can't, obviously I know it all backwards, but uh, I've read it so often. <laughs> but um, I, I, that, that really hit me. And I thought there's a reason why he's dropping all that in early on. Yeah. It's, there's, a, there's a lot of, there's a lot. I mean, Conan Doyle's brilliant at dropping the little breadcrumbs and, and also disguising it. He does a really clever sleight of hand in the manuscript of this. So, you know, when you've got, um, uh, Wilder is first mentioned by Huxtable in Baker Street, and yeah. um, you know, and and the context is that um, Huxtable knows that the son has uh, affections for for the mother, and the mother's in Italy. And Holmes yeah. says, "Well, how do you know that?" And Thornycroft Huxtable says, "Because I've spoken to the Duke's confidential secretary, and he's told me about these things." And you know, at that point, Holmes has probably got alarm bells ringing, thinking, "Hang on a minute." This, you've just told me that this Duke is really cagey about his reputation and family scandal. You've just told me that his confidential secretary has told you something that yeah. is incredibly, you know, so I think Holmes probably already, before he's left Baker Street, is already on the case of Wilder. Um, and, he, just um, he, just, he just doesn't know it's a chat. He thinks more blackmail than a... a exactly. Blackmail. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think you're right. I think there's, so, um, uh, yeah, so I think... Um, Oh gosh, I've forgotten. I've lost my train of thought now. I hope you can edit that bit. <laughs> um, it's, it's interesting the way he just—he does, as you say, drop a breadcrumb in every now and then. Yeah. Um, uh, but it's all about misdirection as well as I mean, I mean, for the good and, and for ill as well. And the reason I say that is because is there anyone reading the stories when they came out? If we can go back all that amount of time, who reads the word gypsies and thinks? It's definitely the gypsies. That <laughs> yeah. Or, 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 you know, well, it must be this young boy. What was it the young man and the boy? Yep. Go off to Liverpool as well. You know, yep. we, every, you, the people are wise to Conan Doyle by this time, I think. Are they? They're, yeah, they're, okay. they're wise gypsies, to it's definitely not them. It's not them. You can rule them out. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. No, it's a bit, you know, it, it's, I think the, 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 the story also gets a bit bogged down with this, this, um, with the with the bicycling stuff as well, um, and like you say, it gets mentioned. It gets mentioned an awful lot. I mean, it's 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 also Conan Doyle showing his hand a bit because he's he's yeah. basically ripping off raffles here. I mean, this is this is from a raffles story. Yeah. Um, uh, so he's ripping off his brother-in-law's work, and um, uh, but you've also got. So, but that sequence seems to go on for quite an inordinate amount of time. Reading it again, um, the bit that I there, there were two bits about it that I I did did enjoy though in the the bicycle bit. One was the fact that you get you get Watson saying twice, "But the bicycle." <laughs> so he says, he says, "But the bicycle." I objected, and then Holmes goes on a bit more. He says, "But the bicycle." I persisted, <laughs> which I thought was really good. And um, you know, you've got to feel for poor old Watson haven't you, when, when Holmes turns around and says, oh, well, you know, I, I'm familiar with 42 different impressions of bicycle tyre. Yeah, yeah, of course you are, yeah. Yeah, it's just like, oh, my God, he's going to get the magic lantern out again, isn't he? He's going <laughs> to slideshow of, you know, 167 different types of cobbler's marks or something. Yeah. It's just, he, he, the poor old Watson. The other bit, though, which really amused me in this, because I haven't, is, is Holmes's attitude to health and safety. Um, 
uh, it, the scene is he's Hobbes has been out on the moor and he's been investigating these tracks. He comes back to share his findings with Watson and it says he'd obtained a large ordnance map of, of the neighbourhood. Yeah. And this he brought into my room where he laid it out on the bed and having balanced the lamp yeah. in the middle yeah. of it, we, he began to smoke over it yeah. and occasionally to point out objects of interest with the reeking amber of his pipe presumably before he sort of you know juggled lit fireworks and rubbed two sticks together i mean it's it's just a fantastic sequence i just read it i just thought i'm sure conan Doyle did not intend it that way but it just sounds like you again you have to empathize with mrs hudson in this moment and just think yeah exactly yeah. you know my yeah, god what a yeah. <laughs> you know what a we, we do a section on the show all the time called uh, Watson Watts, so this is a good place to do it, I think. Oh, I think yeah. When I read that, my first thought was, why, why, why doesn't Watson say, well, if we're going to do this, can, can we use your room? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, poor old Watson. He really he doesn't get much to do in this one, does he? he, he well, th this is our point to the reason we do this, is because he doesn't actually do a great deal other, other than write. Mm. Uh, and the, the famous one, obviously, is the glorious Scott and Musgrave ritual, where he literally sits in, man sits in chair. Yes. Um, yes. And, and even then, compared to some of the others, that's a big adventure for Watson. <laughs> but, um, but, he, but he gets to um, he gets to lift um, Holmes up so he can look through the window. That's right. Yes, he, he can. He's a ladder in this one. He has a moment of doctoring of being the world's worst doctor. A man's collapsed. Give him brandy. It's the yes, yes. of course. Well, always a famous one. Yeah. What you read there is hard alcohol. <laughs> the first thing to start well, the heart again. I don't think he was taking much of this story in. Maybe he was on the brandy himself, because when he comes <laughs> around to mentioning it again in the Blanche Soldier, he calls it the Abbey School and the case of the Duke of Greyminster. So yeah, that's he's right. got he's got he's maybe he wasn't paying that much attention in this one. Well, we, we have discussed in the past in, in the cardboard box, um, you know, when, when there's very obviously a nasty murder going on that they go to the pub for four hours. <laughs> they <wild>. do. <laughs> so. Well, as you would. I think. <laughs> yeah, Probably I'm does sorry, his I best thinking there. I can't solve this until I'm a little bit out of it, to be honest. I mean, the milk wasn't enough. Well, whatever's <laughs> in the milk, you know, we, we get to ascertain. John, I haven't asked you about this yet. What was? Do you, are you a fan of the, the primary school? Do you know, it's one of the ones that I can never actually remember what happens <laughs> in it. I'm like uh, that with the second stain. Yeah. Won't, I, go, I, won't go in, won't go in. <laughs> I, I know. I, I remember the fact the kids got missing from the school, but I can never remember the the solution. But then when I start, um, you know, when, when I start reading it, I'm like, oh yeah, it's, it's the it's the confidential secretary and the stuff like that. But I never remember the stuff with the cows and, and things like that. It's sort of the, yeah, it's um, it just it just doesn't get my attention. But it's very well written. Um, yeah, it is. Because like yeah. um, he's written it before. That's why. <laughs> no, but I knew. I, I, you know, we said the, the use of the language and stuff like that. I, I just love the opening um, <clears throat> sentence. We have had some dramatic entrances and exits upon our small stage at Baker Street. Just, yeah. just that. Just uh, what? Well, also, also, John Wales is mentioned. What's that? Abigail, Abigail Benny's mentioned. Abigail mentioned. Yes, the Abigail yes. Benny. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. The. Um, what was I saying? Yeah, it, it just Watts has just got this flourish in this one. He's uh, he, he's being a bit a bit arty. <laughs> yeah, it does. He does. He gets a great. He gives the Duke of Holderness a fantastic description as well. Yeah. 
I mean, this tall and stately person, scrupulously dressed with a drawn, thin face and a nose which was grotesque, grotesquely curved and long. And this, his complexion was of a dead pallor, which was more, stri- more startling by contrast with a long dwindling beard of vivid red, which flowed down over his white waistcoat with his watch chain gleaming through the fringe. I mean, it's like this sort of, I don't know, emaciated Santa um, of, a, of the Duke. And he's, he's, but it's a great, it's, it's a, it's a great description. And um, uh, the, the, the pageant illustration that goes along with that is, is, is wonderful as well. Kundal's yeah, brilliant. It's sort of just drawing out that, you know, he can, he can get across the personality of someone as well as the physical description in typically a sentence. And it's, um, you know, he does that. He does that time and again. And it's it's why I think these stories, even even though you can knock them for, you know, elements of the, the, the stories and, you know, the, some of the plotting sometimes less so the plotting actually typically is pretty good on it. But, you know, um, sometimes the sort of plot mechanics of it. Um, I think uh, there's always something to enjoy in this, John. I think you're right. There's always there's always some something in the writing. I, I certainly enjoyed it more than I thought I would when I reread it. Mm. And because um, obviously, because my, my role here is to ask questions of all the people who come on, and I keep thinking, what happens if there's not much to do or not much <laughs> to say? And I'm, and this this one has got tons of. I mean, we haven't even mentioned the cows, which I think is genuinely ingenious. Well, um, mm. um, I, I love Reuben Hayes just because yeah, he Ruben might as well walk around with a big sign saying, "It was me, everyone." <laughs> yes. Um, I love the description of his pub. I love the. Um, uh, he turns his ankle, home's turning his ankle. Yeah. Yet, yet can somehow supposed to steer a horse home. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> which I don't understand. I even quite like Lord Saltire, but I would quite like to know what he was doing putting his cap on in the middle of the night. Yes, that's a good point. I mean, maybe it was cold out. That's the only thing I can think of. I mean, the, the other thing about Lord Saltire is that, you know, and this might be reading too much into it, you know. Oh, we're here is, for that. This is a little boy called Arthur, who's in, yeah, a, who's, in a, who's in a boarding school and doesn't really like it very much. And that sounds awfully like a certain writer um, yeah. in his early years at Stonyhurst. So, you know, the um, it's also Saltire, Flag of Scotland. So, you know, I thought, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's a, it, there are lots of little bits and pieces that just sort of mean that even though mechanically it might not work all that well it, it sort of adds up the the cow shoes bit you know he, he got that from the strand because the they were featured in this section called That's curiosities right. yeah. yeah this little photo they're really great if you get the original strand and they you look they're always at the last pages of the issues and they're just weird photographs of different things and he he, he lifted he lifted that and the um <laughs> but it, it goes back to your point earlier about you know the duke of holness being concerned about his family reputation because part of it is that you know they were cattle rustlers yeah um which is a really nice little point that you can miss the first time around i mean it's just it's just as well that they weren't you know we are from a long history of circus performers and yeah, exactly. Hayes yeah. is going across <laughs> the moors in clown shoes uh, you know it, what on earth what on earth uh, it, it it just strikes me as being a slightly ridiculous kind of MacGuffin. But it, it kind of works, and it does mean that Holmes gets to do that fantastic line about, you know, it's a funny cow that trots and gallops. Yeah, um, that's, a, that's a fantastic line. Yeah. And there's another bit around that time. I mean, you know, the, the bit, the there's a line. Uh, I just thought, yeah, it's where 
they're talking about um you know the impossibility of of the scene that they've encountered with the cattle tracks and with the bike but no apparent sign of how lord salt eyes disappeared and um uh, watson says holmes i cried this is impossible admirable he said a most illuminating remark it is yeah. impossible as i stated and therefore i must in some respect have stated it wrong and that to me is just it's just a great line isn't it? it's one of those it's a you know once you eliminate the impossible type aphorism um but uh it's such a it's such a great line it's and that's that's the wonderful thing you 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 turn the page and you know you get another one yeah yeah it, it's I'm, I'm actually it, it, coincidentally i'm about to write something about pg woodhouse oh. um uh, I, I write a, a, an occasional series for a friend um, where I talk about books that have changed my life and you know that made me want to write and, um, mm. and I, I'm going to mention that P.G. Woodhouse famously tried to get um, three stunning metaphors per page and I <laughs> um, never missed ever yeah. Uh, yeah. In, a, in a you know and he wrote 90 books yes um, and, and I think there's there's some I, I, I always go back to the um, I can't remember what the story was but Watson said that he he, he, he walked into the room to find Holmes surrounded by a cloud of newspapers Yes, that's something I use all the time now. Yeah, surrounded by a cloud of newspapers, and and this one is is just, just beautiful. It, it's it's so well written. Um, we have read it before, but um, it it, it is it is just a, a man. It's great. But my only problem with it is if you ask me to write down my twin top twenty Sherlock stories, this wouldn't be in it, but only because I've forgotten it. Yeah, that's For right. Reason, it's not massively memorable when compared to the Solitary Cyclist or Dancing Men or or, you know the the real the real big hitters. Yeah. This would be in there, but it, it's above par, I'd say. Oh yes, I mean yeah, I mean it's it's um the and I think I think Conan Doyle was right putting it into that list at that time for saying because of the accusation of the Duke because it does it does work really well yeah. as a uh, as a twist and it's set up to to work well. It's just the kind of rationale after that that starts to. To let it down. Talking of which, you said earlier that you had some theory on on Wilder or what Wilder was up to. Um, I think he might be the worst villain in the world. <laughs> and I know he's he's protected by secrecy and he, he can't be given away because of who he is. Mm. But um, he's brazen all the mm. way through it. Knowing Sherlock Holmes is coming to see him, he's so. I mean, what 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 I'll do here is uh, there's there's clearly a man in the village or wherever it is who's very possibly a murderer um and he's clearly evil um for start he, he talks with a derbyshire accent that's made the thing too um and um so what i'll do there i'll just just go over there no no little notes but bearing in yeah. mind that he's very good at hiding notes and letters <laughs> i'll just ride around and just just go and see him <laughs> i mean that was a bit of a lucky that was that was a bit uh, a bit serendipitous wasn't it yeah, oh, 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 it's Wilder. Okay. Oh, no, no. Oh, it's him then. Okay, fine. <laughs> I mean, the writer, when he was introduced, the bit I was going to say earlier, and I've just remembered what it was, was that the, the, the breadcrumb was that when Wilder was introduced in Baker Street by Thornycroft Huxable, there was originally two extra sentences that Conan Doyle had in there, which just basically sort of said, oh, what a lovely chap Wilder is. Um, and um, it's one of those things of, you know, you protest too much and it just sort of Attra attracts attention to it yeah exactly um, yeah. straight away but so I'm, I'm you know you can see a bit of it's interesting to see that kind of stuff because you sort of see conan doyle's um mechanics at work you know a bit of I just the engineering. Take that, out, that, that that pushes the nuance in another direction and yeah like, 
yeah yeah i'm just gonna so i'm just gonna leave wilder's name in there and i'm not gonna say very much i'm just gonna leave it and it's actually it actually works really well but wilder's whole idea here if i understand correctly is basically i'm gonna hold this kid hostage until my father has changed his will in my and not, favor and nothing can come of that and nothing and you know it's just you can't change it back oh no yeah yeah and and when arthur's what 18 or 21 you know there's not going to be any consequences there either it's it's, i mean this if you if you're staying within the fiction of the story the guy must be driven mad by jealousy um but it's such a it's such an it's such an odd um it's such an odd kind of explanation for what is actually what is actually going on here it's much easier to just say you know um the boy was uh, the boy was the favourite in an egg and spoon race. Yeah, and um, <laughs> just kidnapped him for that purpose. Yeah, it is it is very strange. Um, we always end these shows with the same question, but th- this is now it was one question, but now it's become two. <laughs> in case you say something that we're already prepared for. All right. Um, you said you didn't. You're not overly keen on the prior school, but you but it's definitely got its moments, which I completely yeah, yeah. agree with. Um, John can't remember it. <laughs> um, John loves the case of identity, though, so loves it. Can't stop talking about it. Um, Best home story ever. <laughs> <laughs> oh, if you ever going to start, if you ever going to start a podcast and you want to do a case of identity, John Reese is your man. <laughs> I, 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 I think, I think, this, like we said, the story suffers from not being. It's not one of the best, and it's not one of the worst. No. Um, so it just becomes unforgettable as a result because it's. Mm. It, 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 it's average, which is a shame because I think it. I, I I do think it's quite good. But I think mm. it's very good. I love it because that's Sherlock Holmes, obviously. But um, but I just can never remember it <laughs> <laughs> when it happens. So there are stories that everybody likes. There are stories which are par, slightly above par, slightly above par, um, below par. Um, Mark, what's the worst one? What's your least favourite? Oh my goodness, least favourite one. Um, this, there may be a follow-up question to this. Yeah, least favourite one. That's. Do you know what? Sorry, that's my dog. I've been prepared for this. Stop it. <laughs> <laughs> Complaining. Well, that's good. It's buying me some time. Um, do you know what? I I really don't like the Vale Lodger. Oh, okay, that's number two. Yeah, that's number I don't... two in the, in, the, in the least liked. Yeah, I'm um, not a big fan of that. I just find it. I don't think it's a Sherlock Holmes story particularly, and I'm not sure why Conan Doyle wanted to write it. Despite the uh, drama, man, yeah, gets, just, woman, man gets letter. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> well, that's right. And you know, it, it's the thing that makes it interesting because they're all they're all interesting, even even the ones that aren't that great. Is that you know this is Conan Doyle writing later in life and going right back to his gothic roots again. Yeah. And I, I tend to view the Sherlock Holmes stories as gothic stories generally. Um, but Vell Lodger is 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 kind of a uh, 1920s updating of a kind of gothic story. So yeah. it's it's interesting in a different way, but it isn't a great Sherlock Holmes story. No. I think. Um, for, for the record, the, the 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 winner of everyone we've done so far, spoken to so far um, is the Matter and Stone. Um, because it's awful from yeah. start to finish, but it's not. But it's not. Can... It's supposed to be a play, so we have to understand that. And also, yeah. obviously, the, the big scene is it the Three Gables? Yeah, Three Gables. The racist scene in the Three Gables. 
Oh yes. Uh, yeah, which is. Uh, but I've just remembered you're a friend of Rob Nunn's, aren't you? Yes, yes, I know Rob. Yeah. He's infected you with his veil lodger talk, hasn't he? Oh, has he? Is he? Yeah. Is oh. he against? Oh well, I I can't. You know, we haven't had the conversation about the veil lodger, but I can well understand why Rob. Rob uh, Rob wanted Rob's... a full ten minutes on why it was so bad. Yeah, well, there you go. You know, I, I bow to his superior knowledge and wisdom on this one, but I'm sure we're of the same mind. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm, I'm bearing in mind we were discussing the barrel corridors. We needed those 10 minutes, so we were quite happy with those. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's only so much you can to say about snow prints in the snow, isn't there? Yeah, yeah, the that, that was about it. Frank Prosper, but yeah. yeah. Mark, thank you so much for coming on. Um, we'd like to invite you on to, for another show. I don't know if we're going to do this on live admin, John, <laughs> uh, um, but we can certainly send the list of what's available. No, that would be um, delightful. Um, because, because bizarrely, there's some really big, big stories which, are, which you haven't got people for, which is really odd. But don't worry, the Mazaran Stone's got at least 45 people on it, the way things are at the moment. <laughs> Everyone's doing that. So, Mark, what have you got coming up? What, what, what's your next show about? Well, the next one we're doing for Doing Some Doyle is actually The Horror of the Heights, which is a terrific story from 1913. And it's, the, uh, it's a, a story about... A, uh, a pilot of a monoplane who goes above the clouds and he encounters bizarre creatures um and it's a it's a really interesting Conan Doyle work because it's um it's sort of like an early Lovecraftian horror before there was Lovecraft so um okay. it's a it's a really good one it's uh it is it is reasonably well known we've done some stuff recently that people have never heard of or, or very rarely heard of um but yeah that's that's the next thing on the podcast um, and where, and where then, can we find the podcast? Sorry, sorry. And where can we find the podcast? So the podcast you can get it on most podcasters, um, Apple Podcasts, and and um, Spotify and things like that. It's called Doings of Doyle, um, and the website's doingsofdoyle.com. Uh, we put the show notes on there, and if you if you don't have the pod, a podcaster of your preference, then you can also uh, stream it off the website. Fantastic, brilliant. Well, thank you so much for that. Thank you so much for your time. We've had to rearrange this a few times. And um, I'm going to say this just in case there's a bit of a dodgy edit. My Wi-Fi went off during this. Um, <laughs> and I'm not going to call people out. Thank you, Virgin Media. Second time this month. Um, so thank you very much. And we, we look forward to inviting you back onto the show again. Well, thanks very much. It's been a delight and lovely to meet you both. Thank you, Mark. Bye-bye. I would like to thank our host at Rippercast as well as producers Jonathan Mengus and John Reese. A special thank you too to Andrew Firth, who created both the graphics and the theme music. You can contact us on Twitter at Adler to Amberley. Thank you for listening. <laughs>